Please turn with me in your Bible to two places. So start, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 18 and find your spot there. We'll come to that in a moment. Hold your spot at Matthew 18 and then go back to near the beginning of your Bible to Leviticus chapter 19. Matthew 18, Leviticus 19. As most of you know, we finished the book of Acts a few weeks ago, and so we have taken a slight moment to talk about some other things before we move into our next long sermon series. And so right now, we are finishing a three-week sermon series about the local church. Uh, The last two Sundays, uh, we've talked about church membership and the way we are to love one another and care for one another from Ephesians chapter 4, the last two weeks. And then today, uh, we are going to talk about uh, another issue connected to the issue of church membership. Lord willing, next Sunday, obviously for Easter, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. We will be in 1 Corinthians 15 for a few weeks, and then our plan is to make our way to the Gospel of Matthew uh, for our next long series uh, coming in a few, a few weeks from now. So we are going to be talking still about the church today. I think this is, going to ha- this is a sermon, I think, that will have a, um, a bit of weight to it. Um, I said at the uh, only a handful of you were at this particular meeting, but at the prospective members meeting on the Saturday a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that we would be talking more about this topic uh, in a few weeks, and we are, we are talking about that more now. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the title of the sermon, and then I will, I will lay out the points as we go. One more word before we jump in is my main text today is neither in Leviticus nor in Matthew. My primary text is in 1 Corinthians, and we will get to that in a moment, but I want to set up with an introduction before we get there. Why? So the, the title of the sermon is Why Church Discipline is an Act of Love. Why Church Discipline is an Act of Love. And I, I wanted the word love in the title for several reasons, but one of them uh, is from the book of Leviticus of all places. Now, before I read the passage in Leviticus 19, we all know, everyone almost in the world knows about the, the, the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Most people probably think that that was originated by the earthly Jesus, but that is not true. Jesus is quoting from the book of Leviticus. The first author that we know of in, in all of human history that I'm aware of that wrote those words is the author of Leviticus, Moses. And I want to read the context for that statement, that famous statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verses 17 and 18 of Leviticus 19. God's Word says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Some translations, you shall rebuke your neighbor, reprove your neighbor frankly, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, do you see how loving your neighbor as yourself is explained in context? So, follow this. We're talking about the covenant community of God's people, those who are in covenant relationship with each other, the people of Israel. Today, it would be the church of God. The people of Israel are in a covenant relationship with each other. Look again at verse 17. I have to say, I love the ESV, but I think the ESV is a little weak in the way it translates this word. Most translations have more of a force to it. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. A lot of your translations will say you should rebuke your neighbor frankly or reprove him frankly um, uh, because of his sin. Uh, you shall not take a vengeance, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the context of that famous command, love your neighbor as yourself, are the words, 
if, you're, if your neighbor is falling into sin, part of the way you love your neighbor as yourself is you reason frankly, you rebuke frankly, you reprove directly, you speak very clearly in a loving way, not out of hatred. Don't hate your brother. It's not coming from hatred or vindictiveness. It's not vengeance. Do not take vengeance, verse 18, or bear a grudge against your people. It's not coming from a grudge. It's not coming from verse personal vengeance. It's not coming from hatred. Reasoning, frankly, and even rebuking a neighbor in the covenant community comes from love. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. This whole topic is a topic that, um, I'll put it this way. This is my experience. I have not done a major study on this. This is just sort of me speaking based on a lot of interactions and hearsay. My, my experience on this topic is this. Virtually all Christians, if you show them the passages, will admit that this is in the Bible and that you should do it at the right time. Just because if you believe in the Bible, this topic is there. But then what I find is, whenever you're dealing with a particular instance it seems like almost no one wants to actually do it. And I think that that is, I'm just going to be honest, this is not popular. I think it is a major failing of evangelical churches in the United States of America in the last century. A major failing. I have a book. It's not a fun read. I had to read it for a church history class in seminary. And this is written by a guy named Gregory Wills, uh, who's done a lot of research on uh, really, a, a Baptist history in, in America. It's called Democratic Religion. The subtitle, this will really grip you, okay? You'll, you, you'll want to get the page turner going tonight as soon as I read the subtitle. Freedom, Authority, and Church Discipline in the Baptist South, 1785 to the year 1900. Now, I know you've, you're already looking on Amazon right now to see how much it costs because you, you want to buy it right now. And I understand that feeling. I want to read you a quote, it's actually not from this book, it's from the author writing in another, in another book. Just listen to this paragraph. This paragraph has so much research packed into a couple sentences. I think if you haven't heard this before, it is mind-blowing. It's almost hard to believe this is true. He's dealing in this book, it's dealing with the state of Georgia primarily. So this is dealing with our state, Baptist history. Here's what Greg Wills said, quote, Baptists practiced church discipline on a large scale between 1781 and 1860, so just think about, we're talking pre-Civil War South, right? 1781 to 1860, Baptists excluded more than 40,000 members from their churches in Georgia alone. 40,000 people were excommunicated for unrepentant sin in Georgia Baptist churches in less than 100 years in, in this state alone. Listen to this. Across the nation in this period, they excluded between 1% and 2% of their members every year. Listen to this. Across the nation this time, he's talking about the nation. In this period, churches excluded between 1% and 2% of their members annually. But the number of church trials, this is somebody who goes under discipline, but then it doesn't go all the way to the end, right? The, the number of church trials was yet greater only about half of the offenders received excommunication. Baptists, on average, disciplined between 3 and 4% of their members annually. 
Today, it's hard to find a Baptist church that's ever practiced church discipline. From this time period, there are pastors who say things like this, when church discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. Now, that's slight overstatement for the sake of effect, right? That's slight overstatement, but it's not far from the truth because church discipline is like a gate or a fence around a garden, right? And if the gate is not there, it's only a matter of time before things start to happen. Now, I want to try to link in your mind today the word discipline and the word love, because probably those two words feel as opposite in your mind, at least I'm I'm just going to guess, as it would be in most people's mind. And I think that's one of the reasons why people don't do it, because it's messy, it can cause conflict, people can get upset. I was talking to a pastor just a few weeks ago who said people left his church angry when they tried their best to handle a clear case of church discipline, and they tried to do it the best they could, and yet it's a messy business. It simply simply is. And so why in the world would we talk about this? Because it is an act of love. So let me give you my outlines. Four points. It's pretty simple. The title of the sermon just says, Why Church Discipline is an Act of Love, and then my four points come from the end of that sentence. So Why church discipline is an act of love, number one, for the world. Church discipline is an act of love for the world. Number two, church discipline is an act of love for the unrepentant professing Christian. Okay? It's an act of love for the unrepentant professing Christian. Number three, church discipline is an act of love for the local church. It's an act of love for the local church. And number four... Church discipline is an act of love for the Lord Jesus, all obviously in different ways. So for the world, for the individual, for the local church, and for the Lord Jesus. Let me just begin by saying that just take discipline in terms of a healthy home with godly, loving mother and father and just normal raising of children. Discipline is obviously commanded in Scripture. He who spares the rod hates the child. But those, you know, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it out. We're not talking about uh, some kind of ridiculous over-the-top discipline. We're talking about healthy, measured, thoughtful, wise, not coming out of a steaming temper of anger discipline. Discipline that is done out of love. Guess what it does? It can save that child's life because it can wake that child up to the seriousness of lying to mom and dad, I mean, just imagine here. If a, if a child is caught lying, which I think is a very serious deal in terms of parenting, and I'm a, I know I'm still a relatively new parent here. I'm, I'm dealing with younger children. Those with older children know this better than me. But when you're dealing with children, when, when, if a child lies, my goodness, if you do not punish, if there's no discipline for that, that child will learn a habit that could absolutely destroy that child's life. Discipline is absolutely an act of love. And another caveat here is before we dive in is Hebrews chapter 12 The Lord disciplines every son whom He receives. He chastises His children. If you are left without discipline, then are ye illegitimate children and not sons. So it it says no discipline is pleasant at the time. This is Hebrews 12. No discipline is pleasant at the time. When you were growing up, we all learned this, didn't we? It's not pleasant at the time, but later, afterward, It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And so, we need to keep that in mind as we begin walking through this text. We'll start with the words of Jesus Himself. This is uh, Matthew 18, verse 12. 
Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let me just say right from the start, the goal of going after a straying member is rescuing them and rejoicing as the prodigal comes home. The the spirit of church discipline is the prodigal's father on the front porch. And when when, when the father looks out and he sees the son who's covered in all the filth of the pigsty, who's found that the world out there is not as promising as it once looked and that gratifying the flesh doesn't lead to satisfaction. Once he's tired of the husks of the pigsty, he's coming back. The father sees him a long way off and what? He runs. This is the spirit of church discipline. When there is a straying individual, we love them enough to pursue them and we rejoice when they come back home. We rejoice more over the one who came back than over those who even stayed. That's the spirit of God and that is the spirit that we should have in this process. Verse 15, Jesus just lays it out very clearly here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if you can hold your spot, can you turn to Luke 17? Two books to the right, Luke chapter 17. I want to show you a parallel passage that's very similar to this one, but Jesus words it just slightly differently, and it might help you understand what is being said. It's always good to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So Luke chapter 17, just going to look at a couple verses here. Look at Luke 17, verse 3. It's almost the same idea, boiled even to a shorter statement. Luke 73, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves, so it's plural, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, do you see here the yourselves? And he says here, pay attention to yourselves. This, how we apply that to ourselves would be our local church, right? Looking out for yourselves, those within the covenant community, and if a brother sins, rebuke him. Now, do you notice in Matthew, it says, if a brother sins against you, as the ESV, some translations have that phrase, some translations don't. We can get into a discussion about why that is. But here in Luke 17, he just says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. It doesn't have to be a personal offense against me personally. It just, it's, it's a known sin. If, if your brother is committing some known, outward, obvious uh, sin, then there should be a rebuke. And if he repents, you forgive him. Okay, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 18. Do you see the wisdom in Jesus in starting it so small? The first rebuke happens with a total of how many people in the room? Two people in the room. You have the person who has sinned, and you have the person who is calling them to account in a humble way, but the room has no more than two people in it. Why? Because Jesus is not about public embarrassment for its own sake. 
This is not about just shaming someone for the sake of shaming someone. This is about saying, listen, there is something destructive and harmful in your life, and I know about it, and I want to help you see it. Now, listen, let's, let's caveat this with another famous verse in the Bible. It also comes from Matthew, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged with the measure you used, it would be measured against you. If you are going to help someone remove the speck from their eye, make sure what do you need to take out of your eye first? The plank, right? This giant piece of wood sticking out of your own face, which is a, there is some humor, by the way, in the words of Jesus there. A guy's walking around with a two by four sticking out of his face saying, guys, I see a speck you've got there. You, it's really embarrassing. Let me help you with that. You're like, every time you turn around, you hit someone. Okay, you got a plank sticking out of your eye. Come on, let's, let's deal with that first. Jesus says, now Jesus does not say don't help other people with the speck in their eye. What he says is, first remove the two by four paraphrasing here slightly. First, remove the plank from your own eye so that you may see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's not wrong to help the brother with the speck. It's wrong to do it if you've got the two by four uh, sticking out of your eye at the time. So, the judge not text is saying, don't use a double standard. Don't, Don't use a standard for other people that you're not willing to use for yourself. But Jesus wants to keep it as as small as possible. One-on-one, there's a confrontation. If the person listens, listen doesn't mean hear with their ear. Listen means I agree with you. It's just like in chapter 17 of Matthew, um, verse 5, same word, God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That doesn't mean just hear what Jesus says. What does it mean? It means Submit to, obey what Jesus has commanded us to do. To listen to means to obey, to acknowledge and obey. Back to Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, pause there. In the Old Testament, this was a principle. One accusation against a person of a crime is not enough to condemn that person. This was, a, this was a safety procedure so that some person can't just have a grudge to bear and lie about somebody and get them in trouble. There have to be at least two or three witnesses who can account for what happened. This gives more credibility, and uh, it also, um, for the person who's in sin, they have more people coming to them. And let's be honest. If one person confronts me, I hope I would hear them out. But it is much easier to dismiss one person as just saying they don't really know what they're talking about. It can be easy to excuse it. But if three of my friends come to me who I love at this church and say, Mark, no, we agree with what he said. We all agree. We think this is a, this is a bad thing that is in your life. You need to re- really reconsider this in your life. I better stop and think twice if three people talk to me about it or two people talk to me about it. And again, Jesus is keeping it as small as necessary going forward. Let me reread verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? A Gentile would be someone who's not a Jew, right? That's someone outside of the covenant community at the time right? So in other words, you treat them as an unbeliever. You treat them as if they are outside of the covenant community. In modern language, you remove them from membership of the church, and you would, in this case, ban them from the Lord's table, which we'll talk about in 1 Corinthians uh, in a moment. But do you see what Jesus says? If they don't listen to one-on-one, then they should listen to the two or three. If they don't listen to the two or three, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, tell it to the entire church. 
This is no light thing. This is no small thing. If, the, if your entire church, I mean, 100 sheep in the parable, let's say there's 100 people in your church. If 100 people look at you with tears and love in their eyes and say to you, we believe the path you are going down is a path of unrepentant sin. We believe that people who practice unrepentant sin indefinitely without stopping lose a credible profession of faith in Christ. If you call yourself a brother or sister, but your life outright denies it because you refuse to repent of sin, especially flagrant and obvious sin, if that is happening, the whole church calls to this person, please, it's, we have no problem doing stuff like this when it comes to the physical health of people we love. If you knew your friend was eating something that, had, that was expired or was poisonous, you would do everything you could to stop them because you love them. Let me give an illustration I heard this week from another pastor. You're walking down the street in the evening. It's, it's didn't quite, the house was not on fire, but I was walking down our street and there was a fire truck outside a house in our neighborhood. So I was what's going on here? You know, I'm walking past, there's an ambulance, a fire truck, what's happening? Well, let's say you're walking down the street in the evening, it's dark, and you, you smell smoke. At first, you just think it's maybe a barbecue or someone's got their fireplace going, but then all of a sudden, you start seeing red coming out from the top corner of the house nearby, and you, you kind of know this person. And you know that where the fire is coming out of the house, the person sleeps not far from where that spot is in the house. And so what would you do if you just walked by and said, all right, I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to try to tell them what to do. I'm just going to keep walking. That's not love. What love does is it finds something and breaks a window and starts screaming as loudly as you can into the house. Your house is on fire. You've got to get out. And if the person came to the window and said, what are you doing waking me up? It's one o'clock in the morning. I've been asleep for hours. What are you doing? You're messing my whole sleep cycle up. Why are you trying to bother me right now? Why are you telling me what to do? And the person became more and more angry at you. And you said, listen, I'm telling you, you're how, you've got to get out. And if, if they rebuked you and said, no, no I got to go back to sleep. I got a busy day tomorrow. Be quiet. Stop talking. And if, if you heard them do that, and you said, oh, I'm offending them. I better stop. And you kept walking. You don't, you don't love that person. And here's the thing. You don't actually believe what's really happening in front of you if, you if you react that way. I don't think we actually believe the Bible. God says someone in unrepentant sin will go to hell. If you don't care about that, you don't care about them. Do you hear me on this? If you know someone, if a boyfriend and girlfriend are sleeping together, day in, day out, they move in together, they claim to be Christians, and you don't care about that, and you know them, you're friends with them, you don't care that their house is burning. Because anyone who continues down a course of unrepentant, flagrant sin, it could be adultery, take your pick of what it might be. It might be unrepentant drunkenness. It might be, I don't know what it might be. If you know, if a member of this church is doing that, deliberately, willfully doing something that is sinful, their house is on fire, and if they don't get out, they will die, and they will be judged for their sins because unrepentant people are non-Christians, and repentant people are true Christians. And I think we're like, oh, this is offensive. Why are we talking about this? Because we want to love people and save people. This is not coming out of, a, out of any mean-spiritedness. This is coming out of, do we actually believe the Bible on this stuff? Jesus, Jesus, the man who was love incarnate, said, tell it to the church because it's so dire. It's so important. Their car is about to go off the road because the brakes have been cut. Aren't you going to tell them? And if you don't tell them, do I actually believe what the text says? Do I actually love this individual? Love is what motivates our response here. Let me continue. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth 
shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, heaven and earth agree in these moments. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, what? There is Jesus in the midst of them. When two or three bring the charge of church discipline to the church, guess who's in the midst of those three people? Jesus. Because Jesus loves the lost person enough, or the person who's at least straying enough to want that sheep to be won back so that we can rejoice at the return of the prodigal. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. Just going to warn you, this is going to be an unusually long sermon. I'm just preparing you for that. First uh, Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to walk through this. I think this is the clear, just as clear, if not clearer, of a text on the same topic. First Corinthians 5, ver- verses 1 and 2 will cover our first point. Why church discipline is an act of love for the world, the watching world. Okay, First Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Paul says to the Corinthian church, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Is that the world right there? That's the world, right? A kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The first point here is that church discipline is an act of love for the world. What do I mean? If a member of the Corinthian church is practicing a kind of sexual morality, he was almost certainly sleeping with his stepmother. That is what almost everybody thinks is happening here. A man had his father's wife, which is also condemned in Leviticus as well. Okay, that's what's happening. That is a kind of sin that was actually illegal in the Roman Empire at the time from pagan law. Pagan law said you could be exiled to an island and all kinds of other things could happen to you if you did that very same thing. So the, the non-Christian standard of morality was higher than what the Corinthians were tolerating amongst a member of their own church. Some commentators, a lot of commentators spec, speculate this guy may have had a high status in the community, which made it all the more intimidating to try to say something to him because maybe he's got some clout. We don't know if that's true or not. But here's the deal. The number one, probably, top three, the number one objection, perhaps, against Christians from the world is that the church is full of, starts with an H, hypocrites, right? Church is full of hypocrites. These are the God-ordained instructions to how to turn that objection on its head. A true hypocrite, a true, like, you know, listen, we all struggle with hypocrisy, right? We're not perfect. We always put on a little bit better of a face than we actually have. That's all true. We we all struggle. I'm not saying that. I'm saying deliberate, flagrant, flagrant, willful sin. When the world sees it, they go, you're just like the rest of us. You're no different. You say one thing, you do another. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And Paul says, for the sake of loving the world, you cannot let flagrant sin flourish in a member of a local church because it lets the world use that against us. To say, Jesus doesn't really change people. Look, I know 20 people. I know 100 people. I know 300 people who are all Christians. They get drunk just like I do. They sleep around just like I do. They're just like, they're no different from me. So I guess Jesus doesn't do anything. Well, where are those churches dealing with those particular cases? If, if the churches were taking care of those particular members, I think the objection would not be able to be used with the same force that it is used today. So in order for the sake of loving the world well, 
Paul says, let the, let, let the man who's done this be removed from among you. Point number two, it's an act of love for the unrepentant professing Christian. This is verses three through five. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Now listen to this. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now let's not go too fast. There's so much in this passage. Number one, how does this work? The, the last step of discipline, how does it work? When you are assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of the Lord Jesus. Does that sound similar to Jesus saying, where there are two or three, I am with them in their midst? This is talking about when the saints of God, probably on a Sunday, typically, when the saints of God assemble together in the name of the Lord, the Lord gives them an authority that individual Christians do not have. I do not have the power to do this on my own, and you as an individual do not have the power to do this. Where is the power? The power comes from the authority of Jesus when? When the saints are assembled together in the name of the Lord. This is a corporate thing. It's like when Jesus said, tell it to the church. Paul says, tell it to the church. When, they, when, when everyone's assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of Jesus is present. What, what do the members do? Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, how is church discipline an act of love for the unrepentant professing Christian? The goal is their salvation. If, if someone is in unrepentant adultery, if someone is in unrepentant adultery, and the church confronts them one-on-one, -on -one, and then with two or three, and then together as a collective, if the church confronts them, and then the church removes this person from membership for unrepentant adultery, they say, listen, you can no longer credibly profess that you're, you have genuine faith in Christ. We no longer see a credible profession of faith. We're, we're revoking that. So the, Jesus has given the corporate church the authority. This is, I don't think this is often thought about. Jesus has given the corporate authority of the gathered church the authority from heaven to revoke someone's claim to be a Christian. This is why when new members come in, everyone together makes a vow to one another. It's like a two-way handshake. It's just, it's just agreement from one side to the other. Well, let, me, let me take you to another text. Hold your spot here. Go to the right to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just one verse. You may not even have time to turn there hardly, but 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul speaks of two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The last verse of 1 Timothy 1, he says, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have, same phrase, handed over to Satan that they may learn not to what? To blaspheme. So, follow this. The two major categories that could lead to serious church discipline, one would be a fundamental doctrinal error like blaspheming Christ. If someone is blaspheming Christ, they can no longer remain a member of the church, right? And so that person, after being warned, if they don't listen, Paul says, I handed him over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. Similarly, moral problems. So there's major fundamental theological error like denying Christ. And then there's fundamental moral error, like this man in sexual morality. Both of those kinds of things would be things that you could be handed over to Satan. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that Satan is the God, with a lowercase g, of this age or this world. 
and to be removed from the protection and the love and the affection. Well, not from the love. We still love. But to be removed from the protection of the covenant community is to be taken out of the realm of God's community, out of the temple of God, and placed into the realm of the God of this age, into Satan's realm. And the, the goal here is, listen, the goal is that what happened to the prodigal will happen to this person. That they will go out on their own into Satan's realm, and they will be, before long, they'll run out of their money, there'll be a famine, they'll be feeding the pigs, and they'll be miserable. And the, the realm of Satan never satisfies. And if that person stays long enough in their adultery, they will start, I hope, I pray, they will start to taste, or whatever it may be. They could pick a hundred different sins. They, they will start to taste and see, this is not satisfying. This is rottenness. This is evil. This is wickedness. This is disgusting. This is not what I need. And they will turn from that, that dirty fountain to the fountain of life. And they will turn back to Christ. And guess what? Jesus says, if they do that and they repent, we corporately forgive them. We accept them. We welcome them back in. Hold your spot and go to the 2 Corinthians chapter 2. One book to the right. 2 Corinthians 2. Some people think this is the same exact guy from 1 Corinthians. I'm not sure about that. But either way, it deals with a guy who had been excommunicated from the church. And listen to what Paul says. We learn a lot from passages like this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. This is a person who had been removed, and he was now being welcomed back into the church. That was the goal. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this is the person who was excommunicated, verse 6, for such a one, look at the words, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I forgive anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Christ is again present in these contexts. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, do you hear this? Knowing when and how to properly remove someone from membership and welcome them back in when they're repentant is a way we defeat Satan's designs. Have you ever thought of that before? The the phrase that we don't want to be outwitted by Satan is in the context of how you remove and bring a repentant sinner back into a church. And how does that happen? I got got to harp on verse 6. For such a, look at the end of verse 5. He says, says, to all of you. So he's talking to the whole church. To all of you, end of verse 5. So he's talking about the whole, all the members of the church, not just the leadership. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, just pause there. That word for majority comes from Acts chapter 27. Now, you might, verse 12. You remember Acts 27? It's the shipwreck at sea. Many of you were here a few weeks ago, right? The shipwreck at sea with Paul, with sailors. Remember when Paul wanted to stay on that one island for the winter? And they said, no, 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 we need to go to the next city. And remember, they got, they got detoured and they got in the wrong place and they got trapped. Paul said, I want to stay here. They said, they said, no. And the word in the Greek is the same word. It says, no, the majority of the sailors and the majority of the people on the boat said, no, we want to go to, the, we want to, go to Fair Havens. Let's go. All right. So what, what this word means is it's kind of like a vote, right? Some kind of vote where out of a group of people, there's some kind of vote and there's a majority. There's a clear majority saying we want to do this rather than that. And so Paul says, verse 6, Church discipline happens how? This punishment is by the majority. Who's the majority? It's not the majority of the elders. It's the majority of the members. Jesus said, tell it to the church. 1 Corinthians 5, when the church, when you are all assembled together, you hand this man over. Verse 5, tell it to all of you. He's talking about the whole membership of the church. 
This is why we're no longer elder rule. We are elder led, congregational, because we believe the final authority rests in the gathered members. I think that is taught in these texts, the majority. So if we were to do this, we would say a two-thirds majority to be safe, a two-thirds majority vote. That's how we would do something like this if we, if we have to do that. So that, that's, what's, that's what Paul is describing there. And you notice when the person is repentant, they are to be immediately welcomed back into the church. All right, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I have to tell you, I have to battle the fear of man every time I talk about stuff like this. This is not popular. It's not, it's not impossible. Some people go, I'm not attending that church anymore. That, that sermon, what was that? The week before Easter, we're talking about this. What's wrong with that? I, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. There's a part of me that doesn't, it's a sinful part of me that doesn't want to go here all the way. But how is that loving? I've got one job. It's to tell the truth. I'm not here to please. I'm here to tell the truth. That's my job. That's what I'm here to do. And if I fail in that regard... It's trouble. Point number three. Why church discipline is an act of love for the local church. This is verses 6 to 13 of 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, do you see here? Sometimes people will say, well, don't you believe in the gospel? Don't you believe in grace? Yes. And as I think John Piper, I think, coined this phrase, at one point, I thought I'd coined this phrase. It turned out I was stealing it the whole time from John Piper. But John Piper said one time, grace is power, not just pardon. Grace is power, not just pardon. I, Paul believes in grace. He knows grace. Paul's the great preacher of grace. And here's what we believe. We believe that grace not just pardons sin, it transforms the sinner from an unrepentant person into a still struggling, still at times sinning, repentant person who is forgiven of their sins and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Paul is mentioning the gospel. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He has made us a pure, clean lump in the Lord. We, we, are, we are unleavened. We are pure in the Lord. So, if there is something in us that is leavened, we need to remove that. We need to get that out before it begins to what? Infect the whole loaf. This is how leaven works, right? It affects the whole loaf. Let's think practically. If I don't discipline my oldest son, Micah, for acting crazy. You know what I'm talking about. We love him. Then if Molly sees him going crazy and mom and dad don't care, then what does Molly start doing? She starts going crazy and Maggie's not quite old enough, but she's starting to catch on. Okay. She's one. She's like, I'll go crazy still. Okay. So what discipline does is not only is it loving for the individual who is disciplined to try to rescue and save them, not only is it good for the watching world to protect the reputation of Christ among God's people, it is good for the other members of the church. It's good for the health of the church because if it's just known, I'm just, again, I'm picking very obvious sense. If it's just known that brother so-and-so gets drunk two or three times a week, and everyone just kind of knows that, and no one does anything about it, what does that do to other people who struggle without drinking too much? It makes them go, well, the pastors say it's wrong, but they don't act like it's wrong. When push comes to shove, they do nothing about it. Therefore, 
I guess it's no big deal. Because if it was really a big deal, it wouldn't just be words they'd be speaking, it'd be actions they'd be taking. And they're not taking any actions, so I guess I can go drinking. And so you, you see how a little leaven permeates and leavens the whole lump. And Paul says, listen, blatant, rampant sexual immorality in a church gone unchecked for months and years, what will that do? It will begin to deteriorate the health and holiness of the entire body of Christ. So for the love of the church, we remove that individual from the church. And that is actually in line with the gospel message. Verse 9. So Paul refers to an earlier letter he wrote to them before 1 Corinthians. So yes, that does make 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians. Okay, so here we go. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now, now listen to these words, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, claims to be a Christian, if, and he lists six sins, which is just, there's more than six, but he gives you a sampling of six. If he is guilty of number one, Sexual morality, number two, greed, or number three is an idolater, number four, a reviler, number five, a drunkard, or number six, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now listen, the eating first of all refers to the Lord's Supper. This has been universally agreed throughout church history. When a person is removed, the Lord's table is banned from that individual. And here's the other thing. When it says, do not associate with anyone, not even eat with such a one, here's what it means. If a person is removed from the church membership for unrepentant sin, it doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't talk to them. What it means is you don't talk to them casually anymore. You don't just hang out with them at the park. You don't just get coffee with them and talk about the movie you saw right? It's not casual. You can no longer have that kind of relationship with this person. If you're going to talk to this person, and there's nothing wrong with talking to the person, if you're going to talk to them, you've got to talk to them about repentance. It's no longer talking about the, 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 the song you like and what your kids are up to and what your roommate said and how much, what you're studying at school. You can't just have normal, casual conversations with, with this person. You can no longer just eat with them. You have to have intentional and deliberate conversations about these issues, or else you must, uh, you must take a step back. Now, I'm really going to go long on time today. I'm, I don't know what to do. I, I, I just, I don't have a choice. So you're like, yes, you do. No, I don't. Okay, so hang on. So, hang on. so I, I want to just quote a smattering of verses. You, don't, you, don't, you won't have to turn there. You can, you can jot them down later or something. I'm just going to quote you a smattering of verses across the New Testament to show you that this, this occurs in all kinds of books in the New Testament. So just, just listen. Don't try to follow me through, the, through your Bible. Just listen for a second. Here, here we go. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according to the tradition that you have received from us. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those, this is referring to elders in this text, as for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, I think that means the whole church, that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, as for a person who stirs up division, 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is God's Word. Second John, verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching is the gospel in context, the teaching about Christ. If anyone comes to you and does not bring the gospel, the true gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. As someone claiming to be a Christ follower who is misrepresenting the gospel fundamentally. Revelation 2.2. 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Jesus praises a church for not accepting false apostles. Revelation 2.20, later in that chapter, Jesus says, this is Jesus talking to the church, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus says, my, the, the thing I have against this church is that they're tolerant of this kind of immorality of, from this particular member. He calls her Jezebel. This Jezebel-like woman in the church, you guys are tolerating her. That's not okay. Jesus rebukes the church. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Are you, are, do you see? This is all across the New Testament teaching, and it's also in different ways in the Old Testament. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You can go look at Deuteronomy 17 for the background on that quote. It'll, it's pretty amazing. I won't take the time to go there right now, Deuteronomy 17. L- look with me at this verse one more time. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Now, do you, do you notice here the word outside and the word inside? You're like, yeah, duh. Well, well slow, slow down. That means that there is a definable group that makes up the church. There's an inside the church, which is the membership. There's an outside, right? And Paul says, listen, we're not here to judge the outsiders. We're not going to go cast judgment on the, on the non-Christians out there who don't even claim to be Christians. God will take care of that. We are accountable for passing judgment within the church. This doesn't mean we go around being judgmental. What it means is when there's a clear case that needs to be dealt with, it is tried like a court, and it is passed. there's a judgment that is passed upon a particular individual, and if they do not pass that test, they are to be purged from among you. Now, you say, this is heavy. This is not necessarily pleasant to think about. Where is some good news in this? Well, let's, let's look ahead here a little bit to chapter 6. And I'm going to close with this. Look at verses 9 to 11. It's a similar list of, of immoral actions that Paul has in mind. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, just pause there. Do you get that? You say, wait, we're all unrighteous. That is true. We are all unrighteous. But what he means here is someone who is locked into a pattern of permanent, unrepentant unrighteousness. That's what he's talking about. And he says, do not, do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Eternity is at stake here. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. If someone is claiming to be a believer in Christ, and say they're a member of this church to make it very practical, if they are walking in a pattern of lifestyle identified by any of those sins, do you understand what I mean? I don't mean they have an occasional struggle with these sins. That's probably all of us, right? What I'm saying is if they are locked into a pattern of a lifestyle based on this list here, Paul says they will not inherit the kingdom of God and don't be deceived. But here's the good news, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I heard this past week, I think it was Alistair Begg maybe getting this illustration from Sinclair Ferguson. I don't know exactly, something like that. Alistair Begg said, he was like, how do you communicate the gospel to a young child? How how do you make it make sense? He said, well, Sinclair had this illustration. He said, imagine you've got this trash bag, you know? You got this trash bag sitting there in your kitchen, and you're, you're putting all everyone's leftover food in there, and you're putting rotten stuff from the freezer and from the refrigerator that's all expired and gross, and you're, you're dumping that in there. Maybe at our house, you got some dirty diapers thrown into the trash bag as well, and it's just filling up, filling up, and it's starting to smell bad, and you, you pull the thing out of the trash bag, and you tighten it up, and you tie it together. You take it out to the trash bin, you throw it in there, and you hope you never see it again, right? That's what you do. Sigler Ferguson said, here's the gospel for, for an eight-year-old. The gospel is this. Imagine a trash bag that holds the defilement of all the things you and I have ever done wrong. Imagine our list of sins. If anyone thinks from, based on what I've said today, that I think I'm some holier-than-thou person who just is just really bigoted towards people, I hope you understand that's not the case, I pray. I am a desperate sinner. Imagine every sin I've ever committed filling up a trash bag. And imagine how massive and grotesque and disgusting your worst moments that you've ever thought of, the ones you've hardly told anyone about, are in this trash bag. The stuff that people are more aware of and a little bit more acceptable socially are there too. All these disfigured, evil, smelly, gross things are filling up. This trash bag is enormous. Jesus comes into the world. You have this endless and spotless person, and this trash bag is flipped upside down and dumped out on him. All of it. The filth that's years old and rotten and putrefied, it comes out and it just covers him. Think about how absolutely repulsive that is. Jesus loves the world and he loves sinners so much that he said, I will, I will go from clean to dirty so that people can go from dirty to clean. I will go onto the cross and I will allow the garbage and the waste bin of all human history for all those who will ever turn and trust me to be poured out on my head and for God to judge me in the place of sinners. And in that way, I will open mercy's floodgates wide open and I will invite sinners and beckon them to come in. And I will say, if my arms were open this wide to be nailed to a cross, they will surely be open this wide to embrace those for whom I died. And Jesus will open and say, listen, there is no more defilement left. I have taken it away. Your sins have been cast away as far as the east is from the west. There is no longer any fear of God's condemnation, although your past life may still haunt you. Jehovah knoweth all things. The one thing he has chosen to forget are your sins if you know Christ. He has chosen to blot them out like a thick cloud, like a cloud, so you will never see them again. The Lord has chosen to take away your sins. You will not die. I think of King David being church disciplined by Nathan, right? You're the man. And what does David say? I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. And David falls on his knees, no doubt, and writes Psalm 51. And I am almost done, I promise. And I just want to read a little piece of this, and then I will pray. 
Listen to these words after David in serious sin was confronted and repented. Listen to these words. Let them be an encouragement to all of us. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let's bow our heads. I want to take just a moment of silence to pray quietly about whatever may be on your mind in light of these things, and then I will pray for us and we will sing together. Heavenly Father, we know that what your word teaches on this is so counter our culture in every way imaginable that it is very hard for us to see how good and loving this is. Lord, most importantly, it is for your glory. It is for the name of the Lord Jesus that we do this in obedience to Jesus, even if it is difficult and in many ways painful. God, help us to repent from unbiblical notions of what love looks like. Help us to become more biblical in our thinking, in our feeling, in our actions, in our words. Help us to care enough about brothers and sisters in Christ to not as jerks, not nitpicky, not picking out every little thing we could ever find wrong, but when it comes to big and serious issues, help us to love our brothers and sisters enough to go after them in love, to leave the 99 and to go into the mountains looking for that one lost sheep and help us to bring that one back to the fold with great rejoicing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.